I'm Scott Schiff. Uh, we are pleased to have Atlas Society Senior Scholar Professor Richard Salzman talking about an important topic today on the significance of rich alumni defunding their alma maters. Uh, after Richard's opening remarks, we'll be taking questions from you. So if you want to request to speak, we'll try to get to as many of you as possible. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for doing this topic. What is the significance? Thank you, Scott, for hosting, and thanks for joining. The significance is for a long time, there has been a kind of a mindless, nostalgic, a knee-jerk kind of attitude toward answering those alumni office funding requests, and uh, people just send in the money. And especially rich people send in lots of money. And we can talk about the reasons why I'm going to spend about 20 minutes on this and then open it up last six, uh, last 40 minutes for questions and comments. But some of it may be due to the whole theory that they accept, even though they're successful. Please give back to the community. Please give back to your alma mater, because clearly they were part of your success. Clearly, you would not have you know, made billions on Wall Street or elsewhere had you not gone to Harvard or UPenn or Cornell or uh, Yale. And um, some people believe that. Of course, there are many multimillionaires and billionaires, as you know, that quit college and then still give to their college, even though they quit. My theme tonight will be that we need a new kind of philosophy of philanthropy. Now, that's a bigger topic, but I'm going to use the concretes of the last three or four months, which are very, very interesting to uh, illuminate that. Now, those who don't know the context and haven't been reading the headlines, uh, in, on October 7th, Hamas brutally and gruesomely attacked Israel. And this uh, instigated, uh, was a catalyst, if you will, for people coming out and saying what they thought of it. And it was terribly obvious that many, many on campuses were coming out for the terrorists and against Israel. And um, I, it's nice to see David Kelly joining us here tonight. David Kelly, who founded the Atlas Society in 1991. David Kelly and I, in January 2023, uh, did a uh, clubhouse called Antisemitism and Anti-Capitalism. And we not only discussed philosophic and historical roots of antisemitism, but I think one of the unique things about that is we tied it to anti-capitalism. That's also going to be one of my points tonight, um, that this is a broader problem in the universities and that there's a commonality between those who hate capitalism and those who hate Jews, which many of the haters will say, personify and exemplify capitalism. It's no big mystery there. Well, after the October 7th attack, uh, about two months later, December 5th, I think it was, there was a congressional hearing which went viral. Uh, and specifically, New York Republican Elise Stefanik, who was a Harvard alum, was one of the main questioners of a panel consisting of president of UPenn, president of MIT, president of Harvard, all women. And the key point was at some point, Stefanik said, is genocide, the advocacy of genocide, the widespread hatred of Jews, uh, allowable under the free speech codes of your universities? And they all dissembled, embarrassingly so. 
they would not say outright that it was against uh, policy. Now, you could have a policy that says anything goes, but none of those schools have a policy that says anything goes on free speech. So this was more an issue of hypocrisy. You know, you, you will kick off students who chalk, you know, vote for Donald Trump on the sidewalk. You'll kick them out, but not people marching around saying, kill the Jews from the river to the sea. Uh, Palestine, Antifada forever. Um, and if you know the history of any of those uh, charges, they are for genocide. Anyway, the reason I'm talking about this tonight is it led to a very interesting and actually quite rare, if you know the history, revolt by rich people. It led to a revolt by rich, mostly Jewish, but I don't want to cast it that way, but investors, businessmen, hedge fund managers, uh, who said, this is terrible, and I'm not going to fund my alma mater anymore. And so those who want to look up the names, the most prominent, and I, and I really I really tout them as heroes, uh, Bill Ackman of Pershing uh, Square Capital. Uh, Bill Ackman went to Harvard in 88. Now, he's, he's younger than I am. I went to Bowdoin in 1981, went to grad school in 88. And he has made a fortune, and he went to Harvard, and he's been kind of the head of this uh, vocally, intellectually, and others have joined him. Here's another one much older than Bill, Leon Cooperman. Leon Cooperman went to Columbia. Leon Cooperman made a fortune uh, on Wall Street. Leon Cooperman came out and said, not giving a dime to Columbia anymore. This is outrageous once they looked into Columbia's anti-Semitism. UPenn, a number of people from UPenn, John Huntsman. Ronald Lauder of uh, S.D. Lauder, Cliff Asnes, uh, who has been a friend to um, the Atlas Society, all came out and said, made statements and defunded or pledged to defund. So a combination of talk and walk. Elon Musk, not really sure where he all went to university, but Elon Musk has been a good voice against DEI. And campus anti-Semitism, DEI meaning diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, which in the acronym world today means the opposite of what they stand for. Mark Rowan, a multi-billionaire at Apollo Asset Management, also has been very vocal. So look him up, R-O-W-A-N. Very interesting story. David Magerman, who's a, a tech uh, billionaire. Now, by the way, just, just an as, as an aside, in the past when overtly pro-capitalist philanthropists and business people have weighed in with large donations to either think tanks or universities or university programs, they've been universally smeared. And so this topic is important because the left knows that the reputation of the universities, the reputation of the think tanks, the possibility that, the, that there might be a turn, that there might be an historical philosophic, philanthropic turn toward a, a kind of awakening, if you will, to woke universities, an awakening by donors who are saying, well, maybe we shouldn't give blindly and nostalgically. Um, in the past, the Koch brothers uh, who gave money to the Cato Foundation, Cato Institute and elsewhere, John Allison, president of um, BB&T Corporation, who set up upwards of 50 pr 
pro-capitalist programs at universities. Um, two cases, there are others, but two famous cases, rare cases of pro-capitalist business people putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and they were reviled and hated. So this uh, protest, if you will, this reaction since October 7th, you could say is in that vein, but it's not as principled and not as pro-capitalist as the Koch brothers and John Allison were. These people, courageous as they are, when you think about it, are largely Jewish and hate anti-Semitism. Good, that's good. They're not self-loathing. <laughs> and and to that level, we have to ask the following. Are, and, and here's an opportunity, by the way, in asking these questions. Is this just anti my university's response to October 7th? You know, which might be like moral relativism, a moral equivalence. We see that going on. Or is it broader? I'm against my university's anti-Semitism. See, that's broader than just the incident of October 7th. But then you could go further, a la Kelly and me. I'm really against my university's anti-capitalism. And then broadening it even further. Oh, my gosh. My alma mater is actually anti-Western civ. It's actually anti-reason. You see now how I'm going from journalistic details, not to diminish what happened on October 7th, but an event, October 7th, atrociously interpreted by university presidents and to anti-Semitism, which is broader, to anti-capitalism, which is still broader, to anti-Western civ, which is broader, civ, which is broader still. And the reason I think this is interesting is all of these people two years ago, could have said, I'm defunding my alma mater. Why? Uh, because it's anti-Semitic. Because it was before October 7th. And it's anti-capitalist. And I'm a capitalist. And it's against me. I have nostalgia for the place, but I have to admit that it's teaching ideas, whole generations, ideas that are antithetical to my existence, antithetical to my happiness. And I'm going to defund, I'm not going to defund that anymore. And anti-capitalism broader still. But on that measure, these universities have been anti-capitalist and anti-Western Civ for a long time. I want to quote something that Ayn Rand said. Ayn Rand, who we're trying to promote at the Atlas Society, very profound, a very prophetic statement in 1981. Last speech he ever gave publicly called The Sanction of the Victim. And by the way, if any of you were there, you'd be older, but Jim Blanchard's group, it was a bunch of gold bugs and investment advisors, free market investment advisors, a lot of them very wealthy. She's at New Orleans and she says the following among many things in the sanction of the victim. Quote, millions of dollars are being donated to universities by big business enterprises every year, but the donors have no idea what their money is being spent on or who it's supporting. What is certain, though, is only the fact that some of the worst anti-business, anti-capitalist propaganda has been financed by businessmen in such projects. Now, listen to this philosophic point she makes. Money is a great power because in a free or even in a semi-free society, it's a frozen form of productive energy. And the spending of money is a grave responsibility. Contrary to the altruists and the advocates of so-called academic freedom, it's a moral crime to give money to support ideas with which you disagree, ideas which you consider wrong, 
false, evil. It's a moral crime to give money to support your own destroyers. Yet that's what businessmen are doing with such reckless irresponsibility, unquote. Now, had any of the current uh, protesters, if you will, the calls for defunding heard this talk, I wonder what they would have said. Uh, because she's been, she said that 40 years ago and in the ensuing 40, is that 40 years? Yeah, 42 years. Lots of money, billions and billions of money has been spent on universities who've taught, well, what do we know them today by the acronyms? CRT, DEI, ESG, all basically anti-capitalist, anti-civ, postmodernist, anti-objectivity crusades at the universities and uh, funders blindly funding it all. A couple of more points that I want to make. One of the problems is that alums, I alluded to this earlier, but we need to think about this. And by the way, this isn't just billionaires. It could be someone who gives $100 to their alma mater. Alums tend to give to their alma maters reflexively, nostalgically, meaning emotionally, not always rationally, not always selfishly. But now here's a paradox, because in the field of philanthropy, you're not supposed to do it selfishly. You understand that's what philanthropy, unfortunately, has been contorted and uh, infected to become. By the way, the etymology, very nice, we should reclaim the world word. Philanthropy means love of humans. That's what it means. Now, it it shouldn't mean collectively love of humanity, although that's okay. The concretization, of course, of is love of humans that we know, actual humans, what we might call significant others. Why are they significant? Because they're rationally, selfishly valuable to us. And your alma mater has to be there that way too. Your romantic partner has to be that way. Your business partners have to be that way. Your your friends have to be that way. Love is not selfless, as is taught in some religions. In, In the objectivist philosophy, it's selfish. So this is a problem that has to be overcome more like philosophically, but it it definitely explains why some very rich people give to their alma maters. But another one is this give back to the community idea. Give back to the community, suggesting what? That they've somehow taken something, that they somehow owe restitution. And by the way, this would mean the richer they are, if they accept this false premise, the guiltier they'll feel. And the bigger the checks they will write, they will write. It's so sad because if you told them, you haven't taken anything, you've earned your wealth, you're not a criminal, you're not Bernie Madoff, you're Bill Ackman, you're Leon Cooperman, you're Elon Musk, you're Mark Rowan, you're the Koch brothers, you're John Allison, you've earned your money, and now you are concerned about spending it not on your enemies, but on your allies. Okay. Um, by the way, just for the record, the, the Harvard, UPenn, and MIT professors who appeared December 5th before Congress, Claudine Gay from Harvard, who has since resigned, Liz McGill at UPenn, who has since resigned, MIT, Sally Kornbluth has not resigned. But for a separate session, I'll leave aside the reasons uh, their performance was so bad and the reasons they were fired. And, but, but also, in, in the case of Harvard, at least, even though they hire, 
basically asked Gay to leave and she had um, plagiarism problems. There's a subsequent issue of who are the board of trustees at Harvard and why are they still there if they allowed uh, this kind of fraud to go on. But but Stephen Hicks and I, my colleague at, at Atlas Society, have pledged to do a mutual topic, a discussion of that later. So I'm going to stick to the, the funding aspect. By the way, I think I have a unique perspective on this because I spent 1981 to roughly 2005 in business in Wall Street on in finance. And that's where these donors obviously come from. And I learned very early on, uh, somewhat to my surprise, that the Marxist myth was actually a myth, that he, he had the view that if you're rich, you're going to be pro-capital. If you're poor, you're going to be a socialist, ready to eat the rich. When I went to Wall Street, I found they were all Democrats and all left-leaning anti-capitalists. And it was a puzzle because they were rich. And so they were either taught that they didn't earn their wealth. Well, that's John Rawls at Harvard, right? John Rawls wrote a theory of justice that says nobody deserves anything. Uh, so that would certainly dispossess you philosophically of your wealth. Um, so that's one thing I learned, which is very interesting. And by the way, recently documented in an article, uh, an academic article called Polarization of the Rich, the New Democratic Allegiance of Affluent, Affluent Americans documenting that rich people more likely support, quote, Democrats and anti-capitalist causes than pro-capitalist causes. So so wonderful as these protesters are, the Ackmans, Coopermans, Musk, Rowans, and others, um, they are still a, a minority, but that's okay. It's still a minority, but they're very vocal and they're very articulate, which is good. So we should be, I think, encouraged by this. So that's one context I wanted to set. The other context I wanted to set, which might seem unrelated, but I think is just the coin, the other side of the coin. I did a, um, a clubhouse recently on effective altruism. The movement that said people should go and make a bunch of money, unlike, um, unlike Mother Teresa, who would go serve the poor, you know, out of poverty. No, the argument from Singer and McCaskill, the professor, was, no, go make a fortune and then give 90% of it away to the poor. Uh, if you know, effective altruism was practiced by Sam Bankman-Fried, the fraud who told, stole $8 billion through FTX, the cyber currency. Bernie Madoff, if you know, that part of his fraud was a fraud through Jewish philanthropy. So he posed as a Jewish philanthropist, invest in my fund, give me money because some of it will be diverted to Jewish philanthropy. And of course he stole billions as well. Or think of BLM, another fraud in the sense of Black Lives Matter, remember the 2020 um, riots, but it was subsequently learned that BLM was just a, a fake front for a bunch of Marxists who nonetheless received $80 million from rich people and corporations in 2020 and then stole it all. Unbelievable. So it is interesting that if you whitewash your uh, scheme with the patina of altruism, I'm not in it for me. I'm serving others. Look how philanthropic I am. Give me your billions. Uh, it's amazing how repeatedly, this went all the way back to Ponzi, by the way, repeatedly how people fall for this. 
Another related point, there have been many cases where capitalists have established foundations at their death, and then they were hijacked. The foundations were hijacked by anti-capitalists. So many of them still exist. So Rockefeller, who made a fortune in oil refining, Carnegie, who made a fortune in steelmaking, Henry Ford, who made a fortune in car making. We have to this day the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, acts of philanthropy, right? But very soon after they were established, taken over by those who were anti-capitalist and the monies and the fortunes from those were used to fund anti-capitalist causes. Terrible. Um, one last thing, by the way, it, it is a couple of things more. It is interesting that the protesting has been met with, as you might expect, and, and I actually, being in academia, understand this, calls for academic freedom and free speech, that donors should not be telling uh, recipients what to teach, what to preach, what to say. So, so this is quite a, this is a, a very effective gimmick in the sense of you just pay and otherwise shut up. <laughs> if you can get, if you can get someone to give you money under those contacts, what a, what a racket. And I don't know if people know the origins of academic freedom or calls for academic freedom. I'm in academia now. Part of my unique perspective, having been in business and then in academia, I know both sides of this story the donors as well as the recipients, at the turn of the century, at the, of the last century, during the uh, progressive era, um, the universities were getting huge donations from rich, what they called robber barons. <laughs> and they said, oh, okay, this is all very good, but we don't want to preach pro-capitalism. So we're going to start a movement called Academic Freedom, which tells the donors just write the checks and otherwise shut up. And that has been that has basically been the model for a hundred years. And it's amazing. And uh, uh, you know, Ayn Rand, as as I said, pointed out in 1981, this is a racket. This must stop. Don't do this anymore. Realize what you're funding. I don't know if you know, but polls are taken all the time of the proclivities of professors. Uh, you know, in STEM, in the social sciences, in the humanities, and the ratio, it's not a, it's not a perfect measure, but you go and look at the uh, registration rolls, Democrat, Republican. Again, if it was a rough measure of leaning toward liberty and capitalism versus being anti, even in STEM professorships, this is all universities, they teach, you know, engineering, math, physics, um, chemistry. Even there, it's six to one, Democrats to Republicans. It's amazing. So if you go into a department, there's seven professors, six of them will be Democrats. But in social sciences, it's 15 to one. So you go into a poli-sci or uh, it's, you know, if there are 16 professors, 15 of them are Democrats. And in uh, sociology, it's 70 to one or something. Like that. So... Um, Harvard has been ranked last on, in a recent poll, ranked last on free speech on campus. So it's kind of rich for Harvard to say, leave us alone, Ackman and others. Stop telling us what to say because we have free speech. No, you don't. Actually, they don't allow free speech much at Harvard. Um, I'll stop after a couple of more, more uplifting 
observations. One of the one of the great things out of the Harvard Crimson lately, and you can you can imagine they're all anti-Ackman or anti-intervention at all of any kind by the donors, telling them to shut up. There is an interesting one recently from Harry Lewis, who's a professor, but he's a professor of computer science. So I'm not sure a professor of the in social sciences would say this. He's he's emeritus, so he's retired. That's another reason he can speak freely, I suppose. But he wrote in the Harvard Crimson recently. This is just uh, January 8th. You might want to look this up. Reaping what we have taught. And he says, why has anti-Semitism been a problem at Harvard and other universities? It's still one of the unanswered questions that, that has precipitated the university's downward spiral. Wow, all this brainiac power at the universities and they can't answer the question, why are we so anti-Semitic? He could have gone deeper here and said, why are we so anti-capitalist? Capitalism being the premier habitat for humanity, how can we be so inhumane as to, as to uh, smear this system? But it's interesting, he says, if you look at the Harvard Online, he's, I'm quoting here from the essay, if you look at the Harvard Online course catalog, it has a, it has a search box, type in decolonize. And that word shows up in seven courses and the descriptions of 18 more courses. And if you try and search by oppression, uh, 80 courses, social justice, 100 courses, white supremacy, um, many more. Intersectionality, he goes on. Um, now, anyone unretired from Harvard could have said that, but they probably wouldn't have got in trouble for revealing it. Now, on an up note, I want to end with this. Um, Ayn Rand's quote, remember, about millions of dollars are being donated by universities. She said at the time in that speech, no one has really researched this. No one has only put numbers to how much money is spent on university. Forget endowments and other things. And, 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 and lining that up with what are these universities teaching. But I must report, because it is interesting and maybe partly in, uh, influenced by Ayn Rand, that um, in 1984, the Capital Research Center in Washington, D.C., was founded and it started just investigating, reporting and documenting um, university funding for purposes of informing donors, for purposes of telling business and alum how their money was being used. Um, so that was like the beginning of what Ayn Rand was kind of calling for. And in 1991, the Philanthropy Roundtable was founded. Now there's many philanthropic groups, but this one particularly was free market, pro-capitalist, pro-Western oriented. And so it did the same thing. It was all, it says on its website still today, it's for a free and flourishing society. And it did the same kind of thing. It was trying to document and or guide um, givers, uh, donors. So that's a good thing. You start with just documenting the facts and advising people. That's the beginning of this movement, I think, which is very good. Now, here's another one. In 1997, a pro-West, Western Civ, a pro-capitalist, American Council of Trustees and Alumni, or ACTA, if you look it up, A-C-T-A, um, who has for years, this is since 97 when it was called, I think it was called Politically Correct Attitudes, now it's called Woke. They were opposing it even then and for academic freedom and for academic diversity and diversity of opinion and things like that. So that was 1997. Uh, in 1999, Donors Trust, I'm giving you this to give you things you can look up and help 
Donors Trust was established in 1999. That's a donor advised, advised fund that kind of safeguards the intent of donors. So in other words, instead of blindly writing a check to your alma mater, you send the money to Donors Trust and they make sure it goes to the universities or to your cause uh, for pro-liberty, pro-American, pro-capitalist uh, reasons. In 2000, the last one I'll suggest to you, 2002, if you're giving money, Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator. Now, Charity Navigator doesn't have a ideological uh, bias one way or another, but it's a, it's a searchable online database that you can look at the, matri- the metrics. These all come from tax filings because they're tax exempt. So you can look at things like how does the CEO of the charity, uh, uh, how much they get paid, what money is spent on fundraising versus the mission, things like that. And, uh, you know, I do want to say, um, being at the Atlas Society, you really must think of giving to the Atlas Society. It ranks very high in all these areas and all these four or five groups ranks very high in terms of not only being truly and authentically a pro-objectivist, pro-objectivity, pro-capitalist, pro-reason, but it's managed in such a way that it really um, is very careful with donors' money and very respectful of donors' money and a lot of bang for the buck, as he used to say. Um, I want to leave with the idea that, I, which I began with, which is uh, to broaden this out a bit, not be so journalistic about it. We really do need, and I'm, I'm working on uh, this uh, project with another philanthropist about this, an objectivist philanthropist, about a new conception of philanthropy, which eschews the altruist, charity-based, need-based, guilt-based approach to giving and pertains more to self, what I call selfish giving, guiltless giving. And it entails very interesting virtues like generosity and then the recipients feeling gratitude. Now, these generosity and gratitude are not Ayn Rand's top seven virtues, but there's no reason to believe she wouldn't have endorsed them and they're very interesting and they're very relevant to philanthropy. But, but we, have to, we have to enter this field as advocates of reason and capitalism. It, it shouldn't be a field left to the altruists who make the producers feel guilty. And uh, so there's an upbeat kind of aspect to that here too. And I think these recent protests by Bill Ackman, Leon Cooperman and others are a wonderful, really wonderful, might be one of the few opportunities in our remaining lifetime to seize the day and take this and you know inform them, get into the debate and tell them, listen, this is more than just Hamas. This is more than just anti-Semitism. This is also anti-capitalism and this is also anti-civ. So you need to be positive about not just defunding uh, corrupt universities, but funding pristine, authentic, wonderful uh, workers and thinkers that are exist at places like the Atlas Society. So I'll stop there, Scott. Mm. Little, I went a little over, but... Yeah, there's, no, there's, that's great um, stuff. I, I, we do have uh, Atlas Society founder David Kelly with us uh, just as he's uh, unmuting himself. I, you know, you talked about the, um, you know, people that wanted you to donate and not say anything. I mean, that comes up in Atlas Shrugged with Hank and his brother at the very beginning. It does. And at some point, 
Phil, is it Philip? Philip says, um, please uh, give money to my uh, do-gooder cause. And Hank's and Hank Reardon starts writing out a check, and he said, "I think Philip says, can you do it in cash? Because I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want it reported that you that you were a contributor." Yes, yeah. And by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, for those who know their Sermon on the Mount, there is a there is a section there where he says, "If you when you give to charity, you must be unan, uh, anonymous, unanimous, must be anonymous." Because if you give with your name, it's too it's selfish. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And and by the way, this this relates to another phenomenon we see, and some might misinterpret this. There are naming rights at universities. The most famous case in April of 2023 is Ken Griffin, who's a Republican. I don't know how pro-capitalist he is, but Ken Griffin made a fortune with Citadel, which is a hedge fund. And a perfectly reputable guy and earned his money, gave $300 million to Harvard. This is all before the recent controversies. And they renamed the undergraduate school the Griffin School. Now, this happens all the time, as you know. Uh, Duke University, where I teach, I mean, Duke uh, was named because 100 years ago, the Duke tobacco family gave a fortune to what was called at the time Trinity College. And they renamed it Duke. And I think students at Duke to this name to this day don't know it was <laughs> created by cigarette money. But <laughs> but none, but nonetheless, uh, what's interesting about this though is just because they give them naming, they, they put their names on buildings and things, does not mean they allow the donors to have any say in the curriculum. And of course, that that's the key thing. Not. Not having your name on a building, but say endowing a chair in free enterprise or, or endowing a center for capitalism, that they will very much resist uh, because of the ideological slant of the university. So, David? Hi, hi Scott. Hi, Richard. Can you hear me? I can, David. Hi. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. Uh, as always, Richard, uh, that was, you know, just a first rate talk and very informative uh i i have one small oh thank you by 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 the way david i have to say thank you so much for your uh the, your new year's best wishes. Oh, yeah. and i i i am i i i finally saw it today how terrible is that is january 18th i'm so behind on emails and i saw this wonderful like happy new year richard and i feel badly that i didn't get back to you right anyway thank you for that it was wonderful okay right and you know when when you're uh the, you know uh, everything you're doing you're so busy you know when when time clears up a little bit let's talk but i wanted to yeah. um just make one small point about uh what you were saying earlier about philanthropy as love of man um and you know, yeah. of course, the concept of love for an objectivist is it's selfish. I mean, it's based on the, the value that we get from other people, and that value comes normally from specific others, lovers, friends, um, colleagues, and so forth. Yeah. But I, I think it can be understood in a more, in a broader sense, um, in it, what Rand called, uh, once called man worship, just yeah. A positive attitude toward human life and human capacity and human achievement is um, something that 
you don't have to know people, but you can still be gr grateful for, you know, all all the incredible people who've done things that have affected your life, whether you know them or not. So I would just, that's a small um, refinement. I But I also wanted to say that this project you're, you're working uh, on with a, uh, a donor um, sounds a lot like benevolence, uh, which I consider it to be a major virtue in objectivism. Generosity is a key part yeah. of that. So um, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm all in favor, and I'm eager to hear more about it when you when you're ready. Yes, thank you, for, thank you for that because I will I'll need your help and guidance on that. But uh, it, it is interesting to me that this pushback on, um, and I think I think it's actually similar to the pushback. Not entirely sure about this. But the pushback that Ayn Rand got for referring to and defending selfishness, which she addresses in the very opening of the virtue of selfishness, people ask me, why are you using that word, everybody? The connotation of it is so nasty and so ugly. And I think equally with um, capitalism, uh, capitalism, the unknown ideal, the title of her book, and, and same thing that people would say, oh, my God, capitalism has this Marxist uh, connotation of exploitation everything can't you just use another word that has less uh you know electricity in it like you know something like free enterprise or and i wonder if the same thing is true i i have found this and now i'm talking about among objectivist donors and they'll say i don't want to call it philanthropy and i say to them why it's love of humans it's love of humanity it's humanism that's our view humanism in the sense of the well-being of humans but let's make it more particular, particular humans. We're not giving to all of humanity uh, because we distinguish between, you know, virtuous and vicious humans. And so it's okay to say, I'm a philanthropist, but this is very new, as you know, David, this is very new in objectivism. The idea of what does philanthropy mean? Why should I be giving? Yeah. Uh, why should I be giving, even within objectivism, why should I be giving to this objectivist group versus that other objectivist group. I, didn't, I don't want to get into that right now, but but there's an uncomfortableness. I wonder if you what you think of this, even in uh, capitalist circles about, I can't really, I can't, it's too selfish for me to give to my university only if they endorse my views or not, you know, only if they're pro-capitalist or not. They're very reluctant to go there. Well, I, a quick answer, Richard, is that, you know, in years of, of talking with donors to the Atlas Society, um, I've always made it clear, I, you know, I hope you don't consider this a sacrifice. We certainly don't. We consider it an right. An invest, right. An, an investment. An investment, right. exactly. And what I hear from a lot from donors, um, and most clearly, I think, from our the chairman of our board, uh, Jay LaPere, is, you know, I'm not, I consider it a trade that I got so much from objectivism and I can afford to, I and, and part of what I get from it, I'd like to see the world be more, you know, informed by it. And I'm running a business. I, I can't, you know, provide, you know, great videos or anything or wisdom to young people, but you guys can, that's what you do. And so, you know, you're doing something that I would do if I could, but I, you know, it's a division of labor. And in that sense, um, a trade. So I think that's the attitude that probably many donors um, 
at least to us, uh, take because they are, um, you know, they're objectivists. They understand the difference between altruism and trading. Yes, and if you say investment to someone, I mean, to the investor world, an investment has a return. Right, yeah. You know, it, has, it, pay, it pays dividends. And so it's incumbent upon the, the, the good recipients to say, here's what, here's what you're going to get for your money. We're going to treat your money well. And, we're not, and you're not giving this for assuaging your guilt, in which case, or, you, or the feel-good aspect. Oh, I gave $300 million to Harvard. I feel good. Goodbye. Goodbye. I don't care what they do with it. That is a, that is not a really proper motive. No. And, and so active engagement and involvement, where is my money going? How is it being used? Is it being used to advance the good values that made my career possible? Yeah, I totally. By the way, we know, David, also, just to advertise for those who don't know, in the new intellectual, the opening essay, Ayn Rand has wonderful thoughts about the relationship between intellectuals and wealthy people between intellectuals and businessmen. And she says, you know, they seem to distrust each other. And yet if they were unified in such a way, it would be such a, such a powerful thing. And that's also relevant. So that, I mean, that's 1961 by 1981, her last speech, she's talking about somewhat the same theme that business people and intellectuals should not be enemies, but allies, but to be allies, you really do have to judge, right? You can't, you can't give blindly, right? It's funny because in their own business, David, they never became billionaires by investing blindly. They never became billionaires by hiring blindly. You know, who cares whether I hired an embezzler or not? Who care? Who cares whether I, you know, hired a fake or not? And and yet, when they give money blindly to their universities, they are in often cases funding really bad stuff that they would never fund in their own businesses. So. It's a kind of schizophrenia that we should reject, but um. yeah, and and I I'll just say you know not to to draw that too much, but uh, our donors tend to be uh, not subject to that fallacy. I mean, I yeah over yeah. all these years uh, of of my involvement, um, I'm super aware that we are you know competing for their investment dollars, and we've got to show results. Yeah. And you know, you know right. that too. Um, right. So it's, uh, and that's healthy. I like that. Um, Ed Crane once, uh, who founded Cato or was the longtime CEO of Cato, said he, he didn't, he didn't want to um, have an endowment. And, I, you know, that's an option that you could take or not take. But his argument was, I, I want to have to earn my living every day, every year. And yeah. he, they did, and that's what we've been trying to do too. So, it's, um, it is a win-win situation. It that's interesting, also, because the other trend we've noticed, David, is, and now this is within the objectivist communities. So this is a, 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 a sliver within a sliver within a sliver <laughs> of philanthropy, where people will say, "I'm not going to write you. I love your organization. I love what you're doing, and and it's true of all." but I'm not going to write you a blank check. I have a project in mind. I have a particular, and you may not like this project, but I'll give you money if you do the project. And, um, and those I think are interesting because whether we accept it or not, it's still on the part of the giver, a very self-oriented approach. Right. 
this is important this is important to them they love this aspect of it and uh i have seen cases in the past where pro-capitalist pro-objectivists will give blank checks to organizations and then regret it later and then they'll shift to a model that says i'm doing project finance yeah another submit ideas to me and i'll have a you know group of people will assess it and decide whether to fund it or not so it's still uh funding but it's like rationally judging the funding request so anyway just just a thought other non-objectivists can do that as well of course they can say i'll give you money harvard do you have any pro-capitalist professors (laughs) do you have any pro do you have any pro reason pro pro objectivity philosophy courses you know and of course you know david here's the thing which I didn't really mention, wouldn't you say, David, that they're not really motivated by that? If, In other words, is it too far to say that the Harvard endowment, which I think is 50 billion, if the Harvard trustees knew that the endowment would shrink by half, wouldn't they still not accept money if the givers were saying, please be give me some pro-capitalist professors or courses? I, I think they would allow it to shrink. Am I, is that too pessimistic? Um, hard to tell, uh, but I, I, you know it's quite plausible. What you're saying is quite plausible. Um, I, I, you know, during the pandemic and uh, the, the, the long before that, the financial crisis of 08 and 09. You know, uh, I, I know that colleges and universities um, took a financial hit, and um, yeah declining yeah. uh, stock portfolios and declining giving from newly you know relatively impoverished donors and uh, they didn't change anything that I know of about regarding their you know the content of what they taught so I wouldn't I I, I, I t- for that reason I tend to agree with you Ideology is deeper yeah, than, yeah, yeah. than money. Yeah. Yeah. And um, these endowments are so huge. I mean, from, from the standpoint of the professors, I don't think they really care whether the endowment is 50 billion, 40, 20, or 10. Their view is I'm teaching Marxism no matter what. Yeah. If you tap me on the shoulder one day and say I've lost my job, okay, maybe. But, um, but the other thing, by the way, Scott, the other reason I laid out this idea of is are the protests concretely you know, Hamas related or broadly anti-Semitism or broadly anti-Capitalism. I think this will determine how long this lasts because because if it's if it's expanded out into a broader critique of the universities, you know, being anti-Western Civ. Well, I'm not that would be they would last longer. But if it's just a matter of we don't really like their reaction to the Hamas war. I mean that'll be over in a couple of years, and we'll be back to normality. So, what I'm hope what I'm hoping is even if they think of it as only October seventh related or anti-Semitism related, I'm hoping we can open it up to them and approach them and try to convince them that this is a broader problem than just anti-Semitism. This is anti-capitalism, and oh, then man. and then this is anti-objectivity. You know, deeper and deeper. You see, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, Bill Ackman, I, I've been following him, and he <clears throat> tweeted something similar, saying this is deeper than anti-Semitism. It's about DEI, yeah, and realizing that yeah. it's not just as you know innocuous yeah. as it sounds. Yes, and in that in that regard, the I would say I think Stephen Hicks would agree with me, my colleague here. 
that a, a critique of DEI amounts to a critique of postmodernism, and that is more philosophical. Yeah, but they would also have to come up with a case for you. You guys need to be teaching reason, objectivity, individualism, capitalism. So that positive argument versus stop teaching the opposite of all those. It's a different. It's a different stance, right? But at least we can be grateful that at at this point they're saying stop teaching garbage, stop teaching poison, and then the question is what is um, nutrition? What is intellectual nutrition? That's where the Atlas Society and others come in and say, we have nutrition. They're teaching poison. I love. By the way, I love the phrase poison ivy. The poison ivy league yeah. has become <laughs> has. Has, has become a kind of meme. And I think it's a little unfair, but it's so interesting because the Ivy League, David's from Brown. I'm not Ivy League. David went to Brown and Princeton, and so he knows Ivy League better than I do. But one of the things I love about Ivy League is they earned over many, many, many years, they earned their reputation. And it takes a long time to erode such a reputation. And I don't. I'm not happy to see the reputation of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and others erode, but I, I also don't want them to get away with murder. So I don't know your views on that, David, but the, the Ivy League is very important in terms of who we influence. And so the fact that these donors, when you think about it, these donors are not talking about Indiana State or Tulsa. I mean, they're talk, they're, they are alums of Harvard, Yale, Columbia, UPenn, and and so it makes it all the more interesting because I think you and I know that's where the action is. I I would agree. Uh, although I think in today's uh, academic universe, um, you know, the Ivy League has always had a special case. And I, I hadn't heard that word poison Ivy League. I love that. But um, but they're also, you know, um, UCLA, Berkeley, University of Michigan are, you know, among among other big MIT uh other big stanford stanford, stanford yeah, of yeah, course right. yeah um yeah. other huge yeah. huge players um yeah, yeah. At, at the top yeah. of the ranks academically and uh you know I, I i haven't followed you know where each of them stands it's it is interesting that um uh, upenn which is not ivy league uh no it is i guess um and MIT yeah. and, and Harvard all got called up and were shamed um, by their reaction to um, October 7. I'm not sure Congress had any business doing that, except for their, to the extent that they fund the colleges. Um, to an yes, and I and and that's not a that's not a point I covered, but but people should know that. Um, there are congressional not only insight and and criteria critique of this, but discussions of defunding, and but some of them don't want to even Republicans they they don't want to defund the university they just want to control what they're saying and it's very dangerous as you yeah. know I'm 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 in academia I want academic freedom and I would prefer that this lead to if it can Congress saying we need to stop funding universities. Not then the answer should not be let's fund them and then tell them what to say. And there's a group that there's very there's very little in the Congress that's willing to say defund the whole thing. So just as just as um, billionaire capital you know billionaire financiers are rightly saying I think I'm going to defund my alma mater. I think Congress should as well. 
I don't think the alternative should be we'll fund you, but tell you what to say and, and start censoring you. That, that I think is terrible. And that is something the universities are, of course, citing to, to their favor, to their benefit. They're saying, Congress can't tell us what to say in our curriculum and syllaba. And then you say to Harvard, yeah, but you got $500 million from the American taxpayers last year. Oh, are you willing to rescind? Are you willing to forego that? No, especially the medical schools. There, there have been studies showing that the medical schools, Harvard, and all the medical schools got so much money from the government that they towed the line on CDC and masking and COVID and shutdowns. So, so on that score, they were told to be illiberal. And if they weren't giving illiberal advice about shutdowns and masking and distancing, that they would lose their funding. So it goes both ways. You know, as long as the government is funding something, as long as they pay the piper, they're going to dictate the tune. We should be fighting against that, too. And I mean, there's so many fronts to fight here. Yeah, yeah there's an ideology being pushed already. But uh, it, to, I, I want to ask with the time we have left, does, does it seem like the donors are, are still hesitant to say goodbye forever or making an ultimatum? But they're, they're, they're talking more about pauses and donations. Is that they're just are they just sending a warning shot across the bow and they like the social setup they have with these schools? I think there's, yes, I think, Scott, there's something to that, that this will, this, the alumni office is thinking, wow, this is a shit storm, but this too shall pass and they'll come back to us and they'll want their name on the doors and they'll, and they'll want their name on the football stadium and, and, and let's just weather the storm. Um, but I don't want to be that negative about it. I think this is unprecedented since Ayn Rand said in 1981, don't do this. Stop doing this. I don't think I've ever seen, David, you and I, I think the oldest ones in the room. I don't think I've ever seen a bunch of rich people standing up saying, I'm not going to give you my money if you're so anti-me. Now, the, the, the issue here, though, is anti-me is I'm Jewish and you're anti-me. And I don't, know, I don't know why they didn't know the universities were, you know, have been anti-Semitic for a long time. But like, will they get to the point where they'll say, oh, my God, you're also anti-capitalist. And that's me. I'm a capitalist. I'm a financier. And I love <laughs> free markets. You know what I mean? Is that is like a bridge too far, David? <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, in, in years as an activist of trying to communicate ideas uh, at being a philosopher, I, I tend to communicate at a pretty abstract level. But one thing yeah. I've noticed is that it. Most people don't function at that level, um, and you need yeah, right. what galvanizes thing is some concrete. And I think this is a, a really striking concrete: the October seventh, yes. the pro Hamas yes. demonstrations at at Harvard and elsewhere. And once you have that, you can build on it. And uh, you know, we we will do so, uh, but others are doing it too, which is really encouraging. Yes, and I think in the past, it's not as if there haven't been recognitions that there are like crazy students on campus. Okay, whatever, you know, in this group or that group. I think the reason those congressional here, and, and I'm like you, David, I don't really want Congress involved. But I think one of the reasons that December 5th hearing was so important is the country saw presidents of universities, not, not some student group. They saw the presidents of three major universities unable to denounce genocide of Jews. 
and I think that, and, and there may be anti-Semitism in the United States, or, but I think that shocked the hell out of people. Yeah. I think people are thinking, what the, if it got to the top, then it must be institutional. It's not just some random student group. I mean, even at Harvard, there were like 31 student groups marching into in, in defense of Hamas. But I, so I think that's interesting too. And that might've influenced these rich uh, givers as well. These, because they, they saw, oh my God, that's my university president and she's terrible. And then if you go further and say, as Elon Musk has done, they're in those positions because of DEI. They're, they're in those positions, not by merit or desert, but because of skin color or, or uh, gender or things like that. Um, then, it, then it segues into a DEI critique and debate, right, David? Yeah. And that's more philosophical. I, I think that's what uh, Ackman was realizing as well. Yes, right. One thing, they uh, even went after his wife and tried to you know, say that she was plagiarizing because she didn't give attribution in every case, even where she mentioned the author and you know in other parts of the paper i mean can we expect these billionaires to face investigation or they're going to try to cancel them as a result of this no i think certainly yes i think certainly but um what do they call it fu money some of these people are so wealthy you can just (laughs) it would be nice to get to the point where we had fu money where you could say anything you want and uh and and say to people i don't care because you're not going to you're not going to cancel me. It's not going to matter. And Elon Musk is like that. Ackman's like that. It is kind of nice. It's nice to have the rich finally capitalists in a finance, what I call capitalists in a financial sense, becoming at least somewhat capitalist ideologically, because the two have not always gone together. And again, remember the Marxist view was if you're in a capitalist dollar sign, you own the means of production. You're going to be pro-capitalism, the system. That's just not true. So what's significant about this phenomenon is capitalists financially are moving in the direction of saying, why are you so anti-capitalist ideologically? They're not quite there yet, but the recognition that there's anti-Semitism and maybe anti and the DEI thing, we have a wonderful opportunity to move them in the direction of realizing that the universities are anti-capitalist and therefore anti-Semitic, and therefore, you know what I mean. And, and then the next really big step is, don't just defund these corrupt institutions, fund morally authentic, real good institutions. And then there's like the Atlas Society. I mean, a, a, a sliver of the check that Ackman writes to Harvard that he's not gonna write anymore, a sliver of that check that went to the Atlas Society <laughs> Would do, enor- would do enormous benefit. But I don't, I'm not even sure he knows of the Atlas Society. So that's the, kind of, that's the kind of power and significance of what's happening here. A mere minor fractional diversion of the money away from corruption toward morality, toward authentic um, idea groups like the Atlas Society could have an enormous, enormous leverage on the future of Western Sioux. That's a great note to end it on. Uh, people can actually donate at atlassociety.org slash donate. And uh, Richard, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank you, David, Scott. thanks for joining as well. 
Uh, thanks to everyone who participated and uh, or just listened, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. Thank you all. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thanks, David. everyone.